Welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, we are talking about SST-20, Husker Du Metal Circus. This is a big one. This represents a major shift for the band, Husker Du, but also a bit of a shift for the label itself. We're kind of, except for some compilations that we will be coming up on, and some other bands here and there, but a big shift from the previous 19 releases, we are kind of starting to leave hardcore in the past, in the background. We're moving on to some different stuff on SST, right, Brent? Yeah, it's a big shift in a few ways. I mean, we can debate this, but, you know, they're about to sign a band that's arguably, you know, bigger than Black Flag, or is going to become bigger than Black Flag. Yeah, that's huge. And first band, I guess, not from the West Coast, if you were to count the Dicks as a San Francisco band eventually. Yeah. So first band from not from the West Coast. I would argue we've already left hardcore too, you know, with Meat Puppets too. For sure. I guess for me, when I was like reading up and getting ready for this episode, I was listening to everything before Metal Circus and Metal Circus. You were listening to Everything Falls Apart and more? <laughs> <laughs> and so much more so much more yeah. um, but I guess I guess what was going through my mind is like Husker Du right before Metal Circus they put out like Landspeed Record and Everything Falls Apart those two 12 inches and Landspeed Record in particular is pretty crazy like pretty hardcore and Metal Circus was a reaction to that we'll get to that in a minute but we have already spoken about Husker Du in previous episodes. They appeared on the Blasting Concept episode, SST-13. During the, the Stains episode, SST-10, we also spoke about the new box set that was out then, Savage Young Du, put out by Numero Records. Excellent package, excellent uh, set. And as I said, listening to everything and more before Metal Circus, there's some really really cool tunes on that Husker Du box set Savage Young Du they really before they before they turned hardcore they were really experimenting with kind of pop punk post punk psychedelic type rock and then they had this hardcore period and then they started to change during everything falls apart and more and then along comes Metal Circus so I don't know, Brant, if there's anything else you wanted to mention before we get into uh, talking about the band. Uh, well, I guess kind of everything you just said about Husker Du is, I think you could say about their entire career, you know, up probably up until Flip Their Wig, when they kind of settled, I would say, on a, on a sound. But prior to that, like, they evolved so fast, which is, you know, obviously one of the things you read about the band a lot. And... You know, part of that is just the how prolific they were as songwriters. You know, like you always read in the books about how you know, for example, when Metal Circus comes out, they're already by the time they're they go on tour, they're already playing Zen Arcade stuff. Oh yeah. By the time Zen Arcade or before Zen Arcade's even out, they're playing uh, New Day Rising stuff on tour. Yeah. So I think it was pretty well like that from from day one. They were fast moving, prolific, great band, and I will say. I'm a big fan of a lot of bands on SST. Black Flag, obviously. I'm a bigger fan of the Minutemen, an even bigger fan of Firehose. But 
Husker Du is right up there at the top for me with Firehose and Dinosaur Jr. and like my favorite, favorite of all time on SST. So this is great to start getting into Husker Du. Well, let's get into it. History lesson, part one. Ryan. Yes. I think I suggested to you maybe we just breeze over the um, kind of the history of Husker Du. And my argument was that, you know, they are probably the most documented band on the label. Uh, but you made a good point to me that uh, some of the people listening to this might, you know, not be super familiar with Husker Du. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how the band got started for those people? Okay. So a couple of the books that I was looking at, in addition to the book that came with that Numero box set, and there are a ton of books and articles and chapters of books about Husker Du, but the two that I was looking at most closely, in addition to that Numero book, is the Bob Mould book called See a Little Light, The Trail of Rage and Melody. That's that's a really good Bob Mould book. We've mentioned that one before. Probably one of the only books written by somebody who was on the label, other than Henry Rollins. But like, I mean, a, I mean, a biography, you know? Yeah, because I mean, Get in the Van is not really a biography. I mean, it's written with Michael Azarad, who also wrote that book, Our Band Could Be Your Life. And he's kind of well known as being a 80s, 90s indie rock author guy, I guess. But I would say when I read this book, it really felt like it was coming right from Bob Mould, the way that it's written. So I like that one. The other book that I was looking at is a book called Husker Du, The Story of the Noise Pop Pioneers Who Launched Modern Rock. That one is written by Andrew Earle. We've discussed that book before, too, and I seem to recall you saying that you didn't really like it that much. I like it less so than the Bob Mould book, for sure. I found that the Husker Du book, like, it has great information in it. It's just not written as well as the Bob Mould book, I guess. So I didn't like it as much as the Bob Mould book. It's good in the sense that it has, like, a lot of detail. It has some great indexes in it. If you want to look up, like, there's an index by song name and album name so that you can search through the book and find stuff that way. So it's really helpful that way, a song, LP, and EP index. Yeah, I really like it. Like, don't get me wrong, I don't like it as much as the Bob Mould book, but it's the best book focused on Husker Du that I'm aware of, other than, I don't know if they have one of those 33 and a third books. They probably do on Zen Arcade, I bet. No, they don't. Oh, really? No. Maybe that's the only one then. Anyways, those are that's kind of where I was looking for info on the band. And again, they're hugely important, but they started off in a way that when I read about it, it's kind of like the perfect way for a band to start. If you are a fan of punk and indie music from the 80s and 90s, of course, the guitarist is Bob Mould and singer. Grant Hart is the drummer and singer as well. And the two primary songwriters. Bass player is Greg Norton who was well-known for his jumping around and handlebar mustache, eventually. They formed in Minneapolis and St. Paul, but they're really a St. Paul band. I think they've been pretty vocal about that, like considering themselves a St. Paul band. Yeah, exactly. You read about them as being a Minneapolis band now and then, but um, a lot of the articles and the books that I was reading up, they're very clear about kind of debunking that, like, 
the the St. Paul side was kind of the working class side. The Minneapolis side was kind of the artsy fartsy side. Yeah. So Greg Norton worked at a record store called Melody Lane, and in about 1978, after pestering the owner and Greg Norton himself, Grant Hart got hired there. So Grant Hart and Greg Norton were working at this Melody Lane store, and they were bonding over records like the Ramones and Talking Heads and Elvis Costello. And they were just kind of, you know, th this is why I like the story, bonding over records. I mean, I've I've done that myself and all, with a lot of my bandmates over the years, so I totally get this. You kind of, you know, you kind of go, hey, what do you think of this? Are you into this? Hey, you got to check out this. So kind of sounds like how you and I met almost. You were working in a record store. I came in wearing a T-shirt for a for a pretty obscure band and here we are however yeah. you know 20 plus years later yeah i didn't get to hire you on to work at the store though <laughs> anyways the same owner of melody lane had another shop on campus called cheapo records and it was it sounds like it was a bit of a little hole in the wall and greg or grant would do kind of a one-man shift there one day grant hart was cranking some tunes out the door and uh, who walks by but Bob Mould came in to check out the music that he heard coming out and he and Grant Hart also bonded over records and music. Bob didn't grow up there. No, he's originally from New York area. Like a small town though. Small town in the state of New York and then moved there, yeah. Like pretty north, north. I think he grew up like very close to the Canadian border. Yeah, well I was reading... It's interesting you mentioned that. One of the articles I was reading uh, might have even been in the Numero book that came with the box set. One of the things that they bonded over in terms of music was Bob Mould was playing some obscure Canadian punk rock singles for Grant Hart. You know that Canadian band, The Nils, right? Yeah, I just bought their reissue of their self-titled album. It's great. Yeah, so I love The Nils. You love The Nils. They're fantastic, and so did Bob Mould. And so... When you listen to some of the Husker Du, you can, I'm not going to say that the Nils influenced Bob Mould, but you can tell why Bob Mould would be a fan of the Nils. Put it that way. The Nils always get compared to Husker Du. Yeah. Always. For sure. And they are, they are just killer too. Like there's very, very little by the Nils that isn't just awesome. Even their live stuff. Agreed. Anyways, Bob Mould, Grant Hart, Greg Norton, they go to a Ramones show together. After the Ramones show, a couple of them start jamming with some other guys. This is around January 1979 in a band. So I think it was Bob Mould and Grant Hart. Greg Norton wasn't in this band. They were originally called Buddy and the Returnables. I don't know if they actually jammed or even played a show. They did play shows. Buddy and the Returnables? Yep, pretty sure. Really? Okay. Pretty sure they talk about they talk about it in that podcast, Do You Remember? Oh, I never listened to that one. Yeah, everybody should. There's five episodes, and they're about half an hour each. I think the last one's maybe an hour long. They're really good. Yeah, if anybody wants a more detailed account of mostly how they started and stuff, you should check that out. Do you remember? It was a podcast that came out fairly recently on Minnesota Public Radio. Okay. It's it's really good. Okay, well, I definitely have to check that out. Eventually, though, Bob Mould, Grant Hart, they were uh, like at their jam space. They saw a bass over there. Whose bass is that? It's Greg Norton's. They start jamming, and they said, you know what, we're done with Buddy and the Returnables. We've got something here. This is us. We're, we're going to 
make a band together. The name Husker Du, uh, which means Do You Remember, in, I think it's Norwegian, and there was an old board game. Anyways, they were singing along to, Grant Hart was, I, I believe, singing along to the Talking Heads song Psycho Killer, and just putting in different words as a bit of a joke to have some fun, and instead of like Psycho Killer or Cascasay, he shouted out Husker Du, and that's how that's how the name stuck for the band. I think it was, um, they talk about this in that podcast too, and uh, I'm pretty sure it's it's uh, Greg Norton says, like, as in, do you remember when rock and roll was good? <laughs> <laughs> and they also, a big selling feature on using that as a name was we can use, we can use um, uh, Motley Crue dots. Sorry. I'll just, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was about to stop you there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but hey, on the, on the buddy and the returnables thing, uh, they do talk about that on the podcast and, uh, there was a fourth dude. Yes. In that band. Yes. And, uh, they, they tell us, they tell a story about like getting the, a Husker Du set like together without him kind of thing and not telling him like just the, the three guys and playing a show as buddy and the returnables. And then like, you know, asking the pro promoter, can we say, play a second set? And they like get up on stage and just blast through these songs. And that fourth guy is just standing there going like, you know, what the hell is this? Wow. What a way to get kicked out of the band. Yeah. Or left behind, I guess. Mm -hmm. So anyways, Husker Du is formed, uh, I guess, around kind of January 1979. They're super prolific right off the bat. They did not get signed to Twin Tone Records like some of the other bands of that era from Minneapolis and St. Paul area, like The Replacements and I'm not sure if Suicide Commandos were on Twin Tone, but those types of bands, Husker Du was just not getting a deal with any sort of record label. So they put out a few records. First one was the single Statues and Amusement on Reflex, their own label. The In a Free Land single actually came out on New Alliance Records the Mike Watt and uh, D. Boone label. Land Speed Record comes out on New Alliance as well. Yeah, and that, that connection came the way they always do. They played with Flag. Yes. And uh, SST, it depends who you ask. I've read a bunch of different quotes, and I one was for sure in Bob's book. Like, uh, Grant Hart says at one point that they had a standing offer from SST going back as far as, as uh, Land Speed Record. He says he thinks they chose to keep Everything Falls Apart on Reflex to help boost their own label's clout. And uh, But Greg Norton, I'm pretty sure it's in the podcast, uh, in the Do You Remember podcast, says that uh, they wanted Everything Falls Apart to be on SST, but Kurt Carducci kind of uh, outvoted uh, Chuck and Greg. He didn't like it. Well, Everything Falls Apart comes out after Landspeed Record. They're both 12 inches. And everything falls apart was recorded by Spot. Yeah, but like I think they, from what I read, Greg Ginn approached them after playing with them. Actually, I don't think they played with them. I think what happened, unless I'm thinking of a different band, was Black Flag came to town. They played, and then Husker Du played an after party, and he saw them at the after party and says, "You should call Mike Watt." I don't remember that. I mean, I read these two books years ago now and i didn't reread them for the show but that would be i just kind of skimmed through to find a couple of factoids 
But the connection of Flag either seeing or playing with a band and then putting out their record is, I don't know how many times we've heard that already, probably 10 times. Yeah, but this was like at the height of the unicorn shit. So like, you know, it stands to reason that they were strapped for cash. Yep. I'm talking about like uh, everything falls apart era, you know, that they wouldn't have been able to put that out even if there was a consensus on it. Yeah. Well, that's that's kind of a very quick synopsis of how Mold, Hart, and Norton met, met each other in uh, 78, 79, started up Husker Du in 79, put out a couple of singles and a couple of 12 inches, and then along comes Metal Circus. Yeah, another thing you hear about, like, around that era, which is another thing, you know, you, you hear, like, this generator... I don't know if it's a generational shift because a lot of these people aren't that far apart in age, but like you hear about this in the LA scene, for example, when you're talking about germs, X weirdos versus black flag. And then like, you know, TSOL and those kinds of bands. And you, I, I got a lot of that sentiment too, uh, from Husker Du, except that maybe the older, like the older punks weren't as didn't react as negatively as the, like, uh, the Hollywood punks did. But, like, that there was a real shift. Like, I think uh, Chris Osgood from the Suicide Commandos says that... I can't remember where I heard him say this, but he basically says, like, the Suicide Commandos were a pogo band. Husker Du brought in, like, a younger audience that was more aggressive. The Veggies, I think they were called. Yeah. That, that's what they called... Hus- the Husker Du fans called themselves. Which I believe was an acronym for uh, very inebriated inebriated, intoxicated, something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, some of the veggies actually started bands, right? Like man-sized action. Yeah. Who came out on reflex, right? Yep. Another thing I read a lot was like around the time they, they signed to SST or signed. I'm using that in quotation marks because Bob actually says in his book, he says, um, they didn't have a contract he, he basically says they had a deal on the table since Land Speed record, but according to him, SST passed due to finance, you know, fina- they didn't have the finances in place. And he says there was no written contract until way later when the band was set to move to, to Warner Brothers and then they drew up a contract. But I mean, the label was solely being funded by Flag at this point, and um, I think they were having a really hard time keeping Flag's back catalog in print, which was pretty essential to keeping the label afloat because that was kind of you know the Minutemen weren't touring right no like they all had day jobs at this point and one thing that I read is somewhere this might have been in Enter Naomi but Carducci said uh, Greg and Chuck recognized a need to add another touring band to the label yeah and uh, they really wanted to sign DOA and Carducci didn't want to really how come he basically says nice guys, but average band, <laughs> which I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, to each his own, yep. uh, you know, I'm a huge DOA guy, so I take exception to that, but I mean, it's a matter of personal opinion and maybe he just didn't feel they fit, fit the, you know, the vibe of the label or whatever, but which wouldn't make much sense to me because they're not stylistically, they're not far off from say the subhumans or something like that. No. And I mean, you would have been you would have been hard pressed to find a harder touring band in those days. They probably hit it harder than Flag, almost, you know. Yeah. 
especially early, early on. Wasn't the success of Metal Circus, though, part of the reason, once it finally came out, that SST could actually keep some of the back catalog in print? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I've read a lot about, you know, kind of when... I don't think it was like... Carducci says like around 85 is when they kind of got financially solvent a little bit. So we're still a couple ways, a couple years away from that, you know? Yeah, but think about the timing of when Metal Circus comes out and then they are done with Unicorn. That lawsuit works itself out. And then in 1984, doesn't Black Flag like release four or five albums and then everything comes back in print? I've read that a couple of times. Well, they hit it hard in 84, right? Like that's when Black Flag goes into attack phase. <laughs> as Greg Ginn put it at the time, which I always thought was amazing. But I mean, like, before that, Flag's not touring for, like, 18 to 24 months. And, you know, I was always under the assumption that a lot of the money that went into SST came from Black Flag tour revenue. Yeah, not for a while, anyways. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Do you want to uh, turn to the Metal Circus release itself? Yeah, sure. History Lesson, Part 2. Okay, well, it was um, recorded with Spot in late 82. Or no, sorry, Everything Falls Apart was recorded with Spot in late 82. And it came out in January 83. So they did have some, you know, they did have that connection in place already. Yeah, I've got the Metal Circus sessions December 82 to January 83. Yeah, what I have is they, they recorded it second week of January 83. They uh, toured out to L.A. to record the entire album in one day. And I, I remember reading somewhere about Husker Du. I, uh, again, I think this might be a Carducci quote, that basically the they were so uh, efficient in the studio because they were always touring the next record. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, by the time they hit the studio, they were they had they had it dialed, you know? They'd been playing it live on tour, so... Nothing will prepare you for the studio more than that. Now, I read in one of the books, I can't remember which one, that they recorded 13 tracks total, seven for the album, six were unreleased. Five of those are uh, just came out on that uh, Extra Circus yep. um, release. But the, the one book I read listed a track called Obnoxious as one of the unreleased tracks. So I don't know if they re-recorded that, because I'm pretty sure that's on Everything Falls Apart. So... That might have just been an error. And uh, one of the tracks, Standing by the Sea, they re-recorded later for Zen Arcade. And it also says it also says some of these came out on comps. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but do you know do you know anything about that? So the song Won't Change came out on a compilation called A Diamond Hidden in the Mouth of a Corpse in about 1984 or 5, something like that. And you're right, Standing by the Sea re-recorded came out on zen arcade the other three on the extra circus and the extra circus is a single that came with the the new numero box set savage young do and extra circus you know tracks that are were recorded during the metal circus sessions but not released on the metal circus 12 inch the other the first two songs on there heavy-handed and you think i'm scared those are a little bit more hardcore, I would say, kind of like land speed record sound. Won't Change is more of a metal circus sound. It's a good song. I mean, 
it's the reason I sought out that compilation way back when. Uh, the other song is called You Think I'm Scared. Oh, yeah, no, sorry. There's Heavy Handed, You Think I'm Scared, Won't Change, and then the other song is called Is Today the Day. Those other three songs, so Not Standing by the Sea and Not Won't Change, I've never found them on other compilations. I've got a couple other compilations of older Husker Du songs. There are two reflex comps from way back, one called Barefoot and Pregnant. And on that one, that has the songs Target and Signals from Above. There's another one called, another reflex compilation called Kitten. And that one has Everything Falls Apart, Drug Party, and It's Not Fair. So these other three songs, Heavy Handed, You Think I'm Scared, and Is Today the Day, I've never found them on a compilation, but I have heard them on bootlegs and tapes from way, way back. They sounded horrible, the versions I had. These ones sound way better on the... They sound really good. They sound as good as anything that came out on Metal Circus. Exactly. Like Maybe, maybe even a bit better. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll be interested to hear what you think. This is one of... I'm not... Okay, so I'm, I wouldn't call myself a vinyl snob, but there are certain records that sound better on vinyl. I always point out the Replacements album Tim as a record that forever, until they remastered it, sounded like crap on CD and sounded awesome on vinyl. I still maintain that Metal Circus, the vinyl sounds way better than the CD. And when I played, and I played them back to back, kind of, the Extra Circus single doesn't sound that much different than Metal Circus on vinyl. I didn't compare it against the CD, though. I just know that the vinyl sounds better than the CD in this case. I am not an audiophile at all. I don't know. Some stuff, yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess it depends how well you know the recording, too. Like, I'll give you an example. Like, I used to kind of scoff at this digital remastering thing that started, you know, like 10 years ago or so, you know, when the labels started repackaging stuff all the time. But I bought all the ACDC <laughs> CDs because they were reasonably priced, and I love ACDC. And I know those albums at like the back of my hand. I've been listening to them, you know, my whole life. And some of them sound amazing, like so much better than, you know, the recordings I, I you know, I've been listening to all these years, which would have been either on cassette or the, you know, the original vinyl. So have you heard all of those old? X albums remastered. Have you heard those versions? I don't know. I have no. I have the original of of Los Angeles for sure. I'm pretty sure the copy of Wild Gift I have is a reissue, though. Yeah. So I avoided buying those reissues forever because they had a bunch of extra tracks on them that I kind of had elsewhere. Because there was a compilation, I can't remember what it was called. Make the music go bang, I think. Mm, yeah. Maybe that's what it was, but a lot of the ex the bonus tracks on the remaster I had elsewhere, so I wasn't going to waste my time on it. Then I found them used in a cheap CD bin, eventually, and those remasters sound good too. So some some digital yeah. remastering can sound great. Like I just spoke about the replacements, Tim. Like when they remastered and re-released that, that's got to be four or five years ago. That is a way better sounding one, and I had to get it on CD because it has extra tracks, and they didn't put those extra tracks on their re-release of the LP. 
Yeah, but you're a huge Replacements fan, so like, you know, you know that album like the back of your hand. So for someone like me who's more of a casual Replacements fan, I might not notice as much because I, I don't have that history with that album, you know? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Tommy Ramone recorded Tim, and, you know, you could think that it would sound good or, or bad, depending on who you ask about Tommy Ramone and his production skills, but it's very similar to me, to Metal Circus, actually. That one, actually, without being a vinyl snob, sounds better on vinyl, but anyways... Well, I mean, as far as the production of this goes, we've talked about Spot before, and I'm not a shit-on-Spot guy, because, you know, I, I don't think he's solely to blame for stuff. I mean, the budget sucked, usually, and, you know, Husker Du was not the kind of band to defer to a producer or an engineer, you know? But this album, yeah, this album does not sound that great. People always talk about New Day Rising is sounding awful. To me, this one sounds worse. Really? Yeah. Hmm. It'll be interesting to think think on that when we get to New Day Rising. Do you like the sound of it? Do you think it sounds good? Of Metal Circus? Yeah. Well, he, here's the thing about SST recording by Spot and even specifically Husker Du. I'm not a shit on Spot guy either. And there's a very interesting article where... Steve Albini is giving an interview about production styles. And he was asked about Spot. And what Steve Albini said is exactly kind of how I see it. It's that when you first hear those songs, those records, as a kid coming up, that's what they sound like. And that is, that's the way that they kind of need to sound to you. They capture a sound, an aesthetic, but also they represent, you know, the resources they had. Like you were talking about the budget, right? And yep. Steve Albini, because people would ask Steve Albini, you know, boy, that spot guy really did a crappy job. And he's like, yeah, but look at what what kind of resources he had, what kind of budget he had. Look at how he yeah. accommodated all these bands and what matters. And how and how, how quickly they mixed it. Yeah, exactly. You know? And what matters is this stuff is it's on tape and we can listen to it. If I'm hearing, if I'm getting the sentiment right, I mean, I've thought about this a lot, like, there are, you know, when I was really young, you know, I didn't have access to money to buy stuff, and I didn't, you know, have, a, you know, access to a record store, so some of my very first albums I got were, like, really crappy dubs, cassette dubs of, like, God knows how many generation, <laughs> tape to tape to tape to tape, and, you know... You gotta crank the treble on those, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. But I had uh, a tape that had uh, Circle Jerks, Group Sex, and a bunch of other stuff. I can remember every track that was on it. it had like a, lar a couple Lard songs. It had a couple Jello Biafra with DOA songs on it. Um, it had the Henry Rollins stuff off of um, off of uh, the Family Man, the spoken word stuff on it. But the point I'm making is like I. I eventually, when I got some money, I bought Group Sex, right? Because it's a great album. I have it on vinyl and CD. And, but I, I remember, like, you know, I was used to hearing that really shitty quality. And to me, like, you know, I don't know whatever happened to that tape, but I'd love to listen to it right now, you know? Yeah, it's funny when you're listening, you're listing those songs and that, con it's like, I feel like I got that same compilation tape made for me too. <laughs> I don't know why it is. Yeah. 
but I guess the point I'm trying to make is like I could I could see this stuff being mixed better and recorded better, but it still sounds good. It doesn't sound as good as a modern recording, no doubt about it. But it still sounds good, and it sounds really good because of what it is. That's that's my take on it. Yeah. Hey, you talked about gear. I want to talk about Bob's gear for a minute because I'm kind of a nerd for this kind of stuff. And he talks about it in his book. Lay it on me. Eventide H910 Harmonizer to, quote, shimmer the sound. Yeah. <laughs> which, he, which he got around the time of recording Metal Circus, he says. Of course, he's playing an Ibanez V, which is... I've always thought it was awesome with a P90 pickup. Who else played that? Plays a V? Ibanez V. We we know the guy from the Stains plays it, but who else plays an Ibanez V? Who else plays an Ibanez V? Michael Schenker from UFO? Oh, well, uh, that's definitely not what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Sil Sylvain. New York Dolls? Yeah, man. Cool. Well, Bob's has a P90 pickup in it. And then he, he has an MXR Distortion Pedal, or sorry, Distortion Plus for tone. And this is a quote that I liked in his book. He says, guitars have come and gone, but that pedal is still there. It's the body and soul of the tone. <laughs> That's the Bob Mould sound right there, I guess. Well, he's very loyal to his guitars. He played this V forever, and he still plays that blue strap uh, when you see him play shows now. Yeah. I was looking at the old pictures, and Greg Norton had he had some very unusual basses over the years, uh, but I didn't really write it down. I mean, most punks back then kind of had a Fender or something like that, but I don't think Greg Norton ever played a Fender. Hmm. Do you know about uh, Grant Hart's drum kit? No. So he his bro older brother was teaching him how to play drums on that kit, and his brother was tragically killed by a drunk driver and mm. then grant inherited the kit from his brother right yeah i remember hearing that yeah another hey another complaint uh that you hear a lot about this is that uh greg's bass is really low in the mix which i i'm not sure i agree with that on this record yeah well it's interesting i was just watching the other day a youtube video on i don't know what the channel like reverb.com or something like that they talk with musicians and they talk about their gear and there was one by Lou Barlow and he was playing a flying V bass in it in fact wicked he was describing how you know the way he plays bass and there's there's a point about Greg Norton here in a minute anyways he was explaining how he and Jay Mascus they used to be in that uh, hardcore band before upside down cross okay and Lou was on yeah Lou was on guitar in that band and Jay was the drummer. When Jay moved to guitar, Lou went to bass, and he and he started playing bass kind of like a guitar. He still plays it like that. If you see Dinosaur Jr. play today, yeah, Lou plays his bass like a guitar, and he plays a lot of bar chords, eh? Yeah, and he and here's here's the Greg Norton piece. He mentions in this video about how when he saw, as a kid coming up, saw Husker Du, it was just an insane amount. They were touring like on the Landspeed record and everything falls apart and they were starting to play songs on Metal Circus. It was just a wall of noise, the, the most volume he had ever heard in his life, just incredibly loud. But when they played that song, Diane, 
and that bass riff and the cording, it really stuck, stood out for him. And a lot of Lou Barlow's bass playing was influenced by Greg Norton and particularly that song, Diane. Cool. I don't know. Do you want to talk about the cover and stuff? Yeah, for sure. Who did the artwork? Well, it was Mr. Grant Hart that did the artwork, was it not? Yeah, and he did it for Everything Falls Apart as well under the, like the graphics company is called Fake Name Graphics. Yeah, that's what it says on the back of the this one too. Do you have the vinyl? Yes, I do, yep. All right, dueling LPs. What do you know about the cover? Uh, well, I from what I read, um, he, uh, he rented some office space or borrowed it or whatever from a friend, I'm not sure which. Uh, he got up super early in the morning, painted the logo on the glass, and uh, set up some props uh, that referenced like the band's discography up until that point. For example, there's an airplane on the desk that has uh, NAR007, which would be the uh, New Alliance Records number for Landspeed Record, the catalog number. That was printed on the wing of the airplane, I believe. Desk has a frame pick of Mao from the Statues single. And there's a newspaper also on the desk that uh, has the uh, back cover logo of Everything Falls Apart on it. That Rorschach. Yeah. And they also apparently made a tour poster, which was from the outside looking in, which I... Isn't that what's on the cover of um, uh, Extra Circus? Is it from the outside looking in? Yeah. It's uh, basically... Well, it's it's a reverse of the inside, and it's still from the inside, and but because it's the reverse, you can read it, the words in the right direction. So it's still shot from the inside, it's just the reverse and in color. Oh, cool. Yeah. And on the back cover, it's got, I guess you'd call this the Husker Du logo. That is it, yep. But this looks like it. This looks like not a drawing to me. This looks like uh, a photo of something, like you know, that was made with leather and rivets or something, and then photographed, and the photo was manipulated. That's what I see when I look at it. It almost looks like a manhole cover or something, you know. Yeah, that came to mind for me as well. And then uh, mine's are like a reissue on the vinyl, because mine is not presented in hypersonic sound. Where, so, where does it say that? The original said uh, something about hypersonic sound on it. Presented in hypersonic sound or something. On the back jacket? Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm looking. The original also uh, listed Reflex under the SST logo. Yeah, so mine says a production of Reflex Records. Yeah. Is, your, is yours in hypersonic sound? Oh yeah, here we go. Mine is in hypersonic stereo. See, that's why your sounds so good on vinyl, right? <laughs> Hypersonic stereo. <laughs> yeah. I read a really cool thing in that Enter Naomi book about the SST logo, too. <laughs> he says, this is after he quit the label, Joe Carducci. He says, I can't, he came back very briefly at one point in like 86 or something like that, and they were redoing the logo. And yeah, well, up until that point, the SST logo in the, like, I'm paraphrasing, but it was he says something along the lines of, was just a pieces of cardboard that one of the hippies at the church had cut out, <laughs> like back you know back in the church days. Yeah, yeah. What about the songs on this record? We already spoke about Diane. Yeah, 
Well, uh, real world we've heard before. Yeah, that's on the blasting con. Or, uh, sorry, real world is on the ballot result already. We picked that during the blasting concept episode. Yeah, it's a great track. It's kind of, uh, you know, blasting the punks, I, I would say, you know. I mean, all the songs are pretty good. Out on a Limb, the last song is really good. It's got some trademark mold like guitar freakouts. Like, he's an insane guitar player. He doesn't get enough credit for being a, a really far out guitarist. He's not a. Bob Mold is not like a soloist, but he has lots of amazing melodies while he's playing wall of noise chords and stuff like that. That is just killer. Yeah. I don't know, but I mean, like, this one's almost like uh, Greg Ginn style. And he does do that from time to time. Deadly Skies is the second track, is kind of like a. I don't know, how would you describe that one? I mean, that one is a little bit more hardcore sounding, isn't it? That's that's what I was thinking. It's Not Funny Anymore is a Grant Hart track. And uh, this, we're starting to see individual songwriting credits as well. Yep. Which we didn't see before. First and the Last Calls. Uh, I pretty sure i saw this in bob's book he says is a response to uh, uh the replacements track uh uh oh which one if it's a song about drinking there's a bunch yeah here it is bob says in his book he says it's a shout out to the replacement based loosely on kids don't follow kids don't follow off the stink ep interesting too right like the stink ep and metal circus both gray black motifs right yeah, they get compared to the replacement so much, like, you know, and I mean, like, are, you know, rightfully credited along with, like, the replacements and REM as being, like, kind of the, one of the bands that brought, like, this kind of music to the masses, you know what I mean? For sure. I, I wouldn't, I would compare Husker Du and replacements for a number of things, but not because they sound like each other. No, it's kind of, it's more like... People build them up as like this Beatles Stones right thing, right? Like, yeah, you know, you know, uh, Husker Du are the Beatles because of the melody, and uh, replacements are the Stones because they're because of the debauchery, and you know, people like doing that, right? Like building up these rivalries and comparisons and stuff. But for sure, yeah. Oh, well, uh, I remember Carducci says like this one this album in particular was crucial to like the stability of the label along with like buzzer howl it kind of you know it was make or break time i think for sst and this one really saved their bacon you know yeah well that's that's what i was mentioning earlier i thought i read that too that this when metal circus came out when they finally could put it out they were able to sell enough that sst became self-capitalizing they might not have yeah. been making money but they could at least pay for themselves and start putting out their back catalog so it's a big deal yeah and then i mean the most famous track on here is probably diane it's another grand heart song and and he took a lot of shit for it too like you know uh i remember reading a mike watt quote in one of the books where he basically says like grant got i'm sure he got tired of defending diane just like greg ginn got tired of talking about white minority in every interview around you know around the time that came out yeah you know like that it's you know as though it's like a pro-rape song or something like that, you know? But it, it got the band a lot of attention, you know? It got played a lot on college radio at the time. It was kind of their first big hit, you know? Yeah, for sure. And like I said, that's the one in all of the wall of noise when you would see Who's Could Do back then. That's the one that stood out. Stood out for Lou Barlow, right? 
Yeah. I don't know. Do you and uh, anything else you want to talk about with the release itself? Do you have run out grooves? Yeah. Well, you do too, don't you? Are you going to make me read them? I'm terrible at it. I don't know. Mine's a reissue. Let me see. Well, even even the repress. Well, I'm I'm not sure mine is original. Nothing on mine. Really? Okay. Well, get ready for some uh, a a very terrible read of some run out grooves. So I'm going to hit you with side A. Okay. Go. It says that old stainless charity. If you could see me now, surely. So that's A. And then B is falling from grace with the goose. Semicolon. Howard Hughes, a wing, a prayer. See below. Nice. That's it. You want to do the ballot result? Ballot result. I don't know. Maybe you're thinking Diane, but if it was for me, I would go with first to the last calls. Yeah, I like both of those songs. Um, I mean, I like all the songs off this. I like It's Not Funny anymore, too. I was thinking Diane just because it was an important song for the band. And do you want to know why? Yeah. Because this, for me anyways, it's the sound of Husker Du on this record that I love for all the rest of the records. It's a great song. It's a great track, for sure. What are we doing next week, Ryan? So next week, believe it or not, we're back with Black Flag, SST21, with the first four years. All right. Well, uh, thanks for listening, everybody, to this really long episode. And we'll catch you next week on the first four years. Four years.